Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we sit down with Alexina Anatola to discuss the release of her new cookbook, Bitter. Bitterness is being bred out of our foods, you know, out of our fruit and vegetables specifically. Because at the same time, we've also becoming more and more in love with dark chocolate, more and more in love with an espresso, more and more in love with a Negroni. So what's going on here? Also in the programme, Miriam Zumbul takes to the skies to try Swiss's new in-flight menu. Plus, Nora Hall meets the founders of Sonora Taqueria in North London. That's the way we really want people to order here, you know, is just try a couple of things and just experiment through the menu if, if you like it. And you can sort of narrow down to like, I like this salsa with that one, and I like this one with cheese and this one without, and, and that kind of thing, you know. All that, here on the menu on Monocle Radio. Out of all five tasters, bitter might be the least explored and in some ways the least appreciated. Negative connotations have long swirled around bitterness, but the complexity of this taste is also what gives many dishes and ingredients their memorable, delicious impact. Author Alexina Anatola has written a whole book exploring the contrasts at the heart of this taste, how it can repel and attract and ultimately feel addictive. From coffee to chocolate, many of people's favourite foods have a hint of bitterness in them. It turns out, as she puts it in her book, that sometimes the things that can seem unpleasant can turn out to be really good for you. I sat down with Alexina to delve deeper into bitterness. So bitterness was something that when I took part in MasterChef, I sort of lent on quite a lot during the course of the competition. And I didn't actually know initially why I did that, but it's something that the judges kept referencing. And it took me some time after finishing filming the show to realise that in a competition scenario, you don't have access to all the same tools that you do at home for making food delicious. How do you add dimension to food? It is through things like memories. It is through time. Time's really powerful. If we think about fermentation or bread dough or slow cooking, this adds a lot of flavour. But in a competition, you don't have loads of time, so that's sort of not an option. I don't know who I'm cooking for. When I cook for my friends, I know what their tastes are like and how they skew, so I kind of adjust to them. So I realised that the reason I used a lot of bitter sour and strong flavours on the show was because I wanted my food to have impact and I didn't have these other options for me, available to me. And so when I came off the show and I, they, the judges kept talking about, gosh, you use a lot of bitter flavours, I thought no one's really explored this topic. Um, it's fascinating because there are so many contradictions and conundrums related to bitter And what I found particularly interesting was that, as you said, we have these negative connotations of bitterness, both in food and when it comes to emotions. But a lot of the world's most popular ingredients have bitterness in them. If we think of chocolate, if we think of coffee, um, if we think of tea, grapefruit, walnuts, none of these are, are sort of niche ingredients. So that, I just thought, was a great place to start. I also thought it was interesting that there's a, a narrative that says that we have been designed to perceive bitterness in our food to be able to identify when something's poisonous. But at the same time today, 
I would argue that when I was writing the book, it became very clear that bitter ingredients are very, very good for you on the whole. So that seemed like another contradiction. And I thought, gosh, well, there's lots to unpack here. Absolutely. There's a... There's a sentence in your introduction which I particularly love. It talks about the experience of eating something bitter. And you, and you write, you sit momentarily on a fine border between pleasure and disgust. That to me is so fascinating because so many of the experiences that we have we, and the interesting and memorable food experiences kind of straddle that line that is not just obvious. The more complex, the more it sticks in the mind. And another thing that you say in the book is that we have a single type of receptor for sweet, but 26 receptors for bitterness. Yes. Um, complexity is good then? Complexity is good. And I, I think if we think about the tongue, and there are all these receptors that re respond to different compounds, whether they be sweet, sour, bitter or otherwise, when you're eating, if you're just sort of triggering one receptor, then... It might be enjoyable, but it might not be that exciting for the palate. It might not get your brain excited about what you're eating. But if you can trigger multiple receptors on the tongue, whether it's through bringing different types of bitterness or it's through having sort of all of the five tastes represented, then that's when your brain starts to get really excited. I think it's why salted caramel has, for example, has become such a big phenomenon. It's not just sweet. It's also salty. There's also slight bitter edge from the caramel itself. And so you're really giving a lot for the brain to get excited about. And that's that's sort of part of what I'm trying to say in the book, I guess. Um, I also wonder if in general people's palate has changed in the past few years. Only recently I interviewed the founders of London Cocktail Week and they told me that the Negroni craze has completely revolutionised the cocktail industry. And there is something in it. I mean, Negroni is mentioned numbers of times in the book as well, but it certainly opened the door and maybe made people feel more comfortable with a certain type of taste. Um, how do you think people's palate has changed and why? Something I had noticed that I was curious about was I just don't feel like grapefruit is, is as bitter as it used to be. I just don't feel like spinach is as bitter as it used to be. Brussels sprouts are not as bitter as they used to be because everyone used to hate Brussels sprouts and now everyone, most people like them. And I don't think it's just because we've learned how to cook with them. And so I was wondering what that was about. And then I came across a an article in The Scientist written by a doctor and they explained that actually bitterness is being bred out of our food, you know, out of our fruit and vegetables specifically. And I thought that was interesting because at the same time, we've also are becoming more and more in love with dark chocolate, more and more in love with an espresso, more and more in love with a Negroni. So what's going on here? And I wonder if those two things are linked. I don't know. But if we are not getting as much bitterness from our fruit and vegetables, then are we compensating for it? Are we therefore wanting sort of more bitterness in other areas? And I think just to loop back to something you said before, I do think there's a real sweet spot between comfort and discomfort in life. You know, And I think sometimes I like to, to talk about chocolate as a good example of this phenomenon. Because people just think, oh, well, surely something just purely sweet is the nicest type of thing. But if that was the case, milk chocolate and dark chocolate wouldn't be outselling white chocolate. If you think about it, you've got those three. White chocolate has no bitter cocoa mass in it. Dark chocolate has bitter cocoa mass 
rounded out with some sugar and then you've got milk chocolate in the middle which has milk and sugar added to the bitter cocoa mass. So if sweetness was the aim of the game then white chocolate would be the bestseller but it's never been the bestseller. Milk chocolate was the bestseller and dark chocolate is on its heels now. Um, and I think that's that's interesting. I find the... The, the point that you make about the, the supply chain is really, really interesting because I was trying to find ingredients to cook from this cookbook myself in the lead up to the interview. And I really wanted to make the chicory gratin or the radicchio pasta. And, you know, in the local supermarkets around my house, yeah. I couldn't find any of these things. Perhaps if it was a different location, I'm sure if it, I was in Italy and, you yes. know, in, in a market where there's plenty of this produce available, Perhaps it would have been a different story. But I was only able to find myself a jar of tahini and I had to go for the kind of tahini-honey combination, which is lovely. But I feel like we're slightly being cut out from these slightly harder ingredients, you know, because they feel a bit more mature, perhaps. You know, there is a sense of like a lot of these taste being kind of grown-up taste, alcohol, coffee. There are things that the children don't eat. The, the children only have the sweet tooth. Like, Is there a little bit of an infantilization almost of what's on the supermarket shelves? You're right that in Italy, I mean, I think Italy is a great example of a culture that really embraces bitterness um, across all their kind of all their, their dishes and cuisine. Our palate does change as we age. And so this idea that, you know, as you get older, your palate becomes more mature is true because when you're younger, it's in evolutionary terms, the aim of the game is that the child has to survive to adulthood. And so, you know, the child needs energy and sugar represents, you know, calories. So that's why as a child, kids are very obsessed with sweet things. They are less inclined to enjoy something bitter. As you get older, that does change and you don't need to survive in the same way. So you're more open to broader flavour experiences, but also you've built... I mean, you know, I think our perception of flavour is, is very subjective. It's very influenced by culture, by experiences we've had with people. And so you have a richer bank of experiences as you get older to draw upon, which might influence how you taste something. You certainly aren't needing to go after the sweet sweetness quite as much and also you your taste buds start to die off so actually as you get older you want sort of more punchy flavors to kind of excite you as if by magic <laughs> we have presented you yes. with a cup of tea yes. that has some milk in it and we also have this wonderful platter of bitter ingredients that i thought we could kind of get a taste of yes and then you maybe could guide us a little bit about what the flavour feels like, but also how you would cook with that type of flavour. So right. you've got a cup of tea in front of you, which you've just taken a lovely sip from. Yes. Um, it's a classic, particularly mm -hmm. here in Britain. But how does black tea feel for you in the mouth? And also, what, can you, what magic can you do with it? So a mug of black tea, I, I almost find unpalatably bitter, actually. It's it's quite thin tasting and it's quite harsh. And the addition of the milk is, you know, it's maybe the fat molecules in the milk are coating your tongue and it's in, sort of insulating you from some of the bitterness of the tea. And this is something we all do daily and some of us even add sugar. So maybe if the bitterness is is something that we really, really aren't so big fan of. We'll also add sugar to balance it out. Um, in the book, I use tea in more in terms of 
infusing things or from the tea bag. So there are sort of there's short cardamom chai shortbread in the book. I find shortbread quite delicious, buttery, but quite sweet. And I really felt like the bitterness of the black tea just helped to balance it out. And I think that's actually true. Of, I think bitterness is very, very, very useful when it comes to desserts in general. Let's go to one of the great classics of all time, chocolate. Chocolate. Could, you, could I grab a piece, of please? Of course. Here you go. Uh, let's, go let's get a taste. Yeah. The amazing thing is that it doesn't do everything at once. It no. starts in a place and then it ends in another Yes. And you're left with something that is actually really quite lovely from the chalkiness of the beginning. When you first taste it, as you said, there's a kind of chalkiness, kind of the bitterness comes through. And then I get kind of a hit of sweetness, but they don't sort of come together until it starts to melt on your tongue, I find. But what's interesting is that, you know, all seven, 70%, we might think that 70% chocolate is all going to be the same level of bitterness but actually it's not so you it is a process of experimentation to find which ones you particularly like and so sometimes a 70% chocolate can actually taste quite sweet sometimes it can taste as bitter as an 85% it just varies um, but chocolate is obviously something that we we have a great affinity for a great love for and um and I think there's, there's no surprise that chocolate is the favourite of so many and favourite desserts because in desserts you have all this sweetness and it's the bitterness of the chocolate that does a wonderful job of cutting through and making making you able to eat that whole slice of chocolate cake, you know. <laughs> it's interesting also that in certain traditions, like the Mexican tradition, for example, it's used pretty commonly in savoury dishes as well. Yes, and actually in, also in places like Sicily with caponata, they'll grate bitter chocolate over the top. So I definitely think it's not just restricted to sweet things. And we, you know, in as you said, in sort of Central America and Mexico, in a mole, like they will add cocoa and it's adding depth of flavour. That's what it's doing. It's adding complexity to your point you made at the beginning. More complex, interesting foods are generally more exciting to eat. And that's that's the that's the beauty of it. Okay, let's finish on the punchiest of uh, of notes. Uh, we're going to dive into a whole slice of grapefruit. I could eat grapefruit. I mean, I do eat grapefruit every day. I have to say that it it's the one thing that I think I still find a bit confronting. So I'm going to see how this goes. <laughs> it's juicy. How are you finding that? It's juicy. I've had more bitter grapefruits than this. This is still on the fresh side. Yes. But I think growing up in Italy, just eating so many oranges, um, mm. this feels like when you would get an orange and find it a bit too bitter. Right. It almost feels like, oh, no, it's spoiled the experience of an orange for me. But I can see it now. What would be your take on the best way to employ a grapefruit? I think grapefruit's best fresh. Um, honestly, I I love it in the raw kale salad in the book. Um, I think because I think it's one of those flavors that gets muddied as soon as you cook it. It's got a very as you described it. You said fresh. I think grapefruit is very very fresh because it's got this combination of acidity and bitterness, which for me is really moorish and compelling. And I can just eat endless amounts. Whereas if I eat an orange, 
I can enjoy a delicious orange, but I wouldn't want to eat more than one. Whereas, to be honest, with grapefruit, I could keep going for quite a while. So I do think it's 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 best fresh. It's best in a salsa. It's best in a salad. Um, and one of the challenges I had for myself um, was I really wanted to create a grapefruit drizzle cake as an alternative to a lemon drizzle, but it was really hard to preserve the grapefruit flavour because when you cook it, as I said, it seems to lose some of the kind of musky complexity it has. So in the end, it was kind of working out that I needed to do a glaze with fresh grapefruit juice over the top of the book rather than sort of make a cooked syrup as you typically would. So, Dinners on board a long-haul flight are an important ingredient for an airline's business class and the competition for the best meal at high altitude is steep. Switzerland's national flag carrier Swiss has recently teamed up with acclaimed chefs from across the cantons to create seasonal and local dishes for their new in-flight culinary programme, Taste of Switzerland. The latest edition was devised by Olivier Jean, head chef of the Woodward in Geneva. Miriam Zumbul sat down with Chef Jean to ask him about the essentials of serving food above the clouds and to discuss how he brings the flavors of Geneva to Swiss long-haul flights. Olivier Jean runs two gourmet restaurants in his everyday life, L'Atelier Robouchon and Le Jardinier at the Woodward Hotel in Geneva a place where he's in control of every plate that leaves his kitchen, where a guest is only a short walk away. To now cook for thousands of passengers in business and first class is an honor for the French-born two Michelin star chef, who previously worked in the US and Taiwan. Wherever he cooks, the central theme is always the culinary roots of local cuisine. Exactly. You know, there is a very simple philosophy. Mm-hmm. A local product is better than the imported products, which means something you can find locally would be definitely better than something you imported. For many, many reasons. The first one, it's close by where the place you're going to cook. The second one is the customer. Of course, people have, from my experience, I used to work as an executive chef for more than 10 years, and then I've been in different countries, and then I'm very pleased to learn something everywhere I go. And then globally things I learned in different countries is customer like to be reassured about something, like know that they know something, but they also like to be surprised about something. Like if you present, um, I don't know, a piece of cheese that everyone know, the Gruyère cheese, we're in Switzerland. And then most of the Swiss customer know and eat this cheese, this cheese since their childhood. Mm-hmm. But if one chef find a different way to use this cheese, so they're going to feel reassured, but also surprised. So that's one of my philosophy that I try to have um, in, my, in my cuisine. The newest edition of Swiss Airlines Taste of Switzerland is dedicated to the canton of Geneva and its flavours. But what does it taste like? The flavours are outstanding, Olivier says. It's unique because Geneva is nearby the lake, but if you take your car, you drive 25 minutes and you have the mountain. So that's crazy. I have to say, um, Geneva is large about the, the, the palate the, 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 of what you can have, uh, such as ingredients. Vegetables are, cra- are very, very good. We we using most of our vegetables come from Potager de Gaia, which is in Hermance. It's about 10, 10 kilometers from the, the hotel. We have we use the farm um, 
a farm for the eggs, which is also very close to the hotel, about 6.5 kilometers. And then we have all around Geneva, these outstanding farmers, meat, uh, fish from the lake as well, um, dairy like mozzarella from Geneva as well. I mean, and then recently I discovered a lady which is make like um, a tofu and then a, a vegan cheese from pecan nut. I, I assume of, of course pecan nut doesn't come from Geneva, but these techniques. Mm. And then um, in another part nearby Nyon, we have this miso as well from Geneva, from 100% made in Switzerland. So Geneva is rich about the variety and the quantity of purchasing we can have here. But I want to say the things I love in Geneva is the customer as well. Because they are Epicurean, they know what they talk about, they travel around the world, and they have the capacity to spend for something they wanted. So for a chef, it's just unique and outstanding. Olivier Jean's menu has just been launched on all long-haul flights. There is a trout tartare with coriander puree and yuzu shale. There is a delicious lobster bisque with ricotta gnocchi and chive oil. As I sit on a flight to New York, the maître de cabine pours the bisque from a small jug into the warm plate. While everything was pre-cooked back in Zurich, the dishes are reheated in the galley on board and given their finishing touches at the seat. In order to present perfectly plated dishes, every detail had to be discussed for this menu. Dressings and sauces have to be strong enough not to run over the plate. That's why the trout tartar comes with a yuzu gel that stays in place even during a turbulence in the air. The key to success was process, as the Michelin star chefs puts it. The key point of the success is a process. Mm-hmm. Process, process, process. Uh, when, I, when I work with Swiss on this menu, on this program, I feel like we were going to the to the moon with the NASA. You know, it was it was outstanding, great, honestly. And mm-hmm. when and I was impressed about the the organization, the planification, and then everything is weighted well. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, of course, I worked on every single gram we put in a plate, in seasoning, in plating, size of the things, how we cut it, how we measure it. So the process is set up. Of course, we have. Control control doesn't exclude trust, definitely. Mm-hmm. But still, we have to control. I mean, such as receiving pictures, going back and forth to Zurich, and that's why. Mm-hmm. So I trust them, of course, as well. Looking at menus on flights, one can't miss the usual beef, chicken or fish main dish. Also to be found on Olivier Jean's menu is a veal filet with truffle sauce, potato puree and herb salad. Or the miso marinated pike perch with port wine sauce. While some steps in the cooking process have to be adapted for service in the air, what remains is the way the dishes are flavored. Speaking to Pascal Derksen from Swiss in-flight culinary development, we hear that it's a myth that dishes taste differently served high up in the air and that more seasoning is needed to make it flavorful. When it comes to uh, salt and herb quantity, it's a myth. Uh, we attend weekly uh, degustations at Gate mm-hmm. and there we uh, really focus on the quantity of salt, but on ground. There is not a, a special pressure cabin where we go into uh, to degustate these dishes. So this is really a myth that we uh, season the dishes differently. But what is true is that we taste the aroma of wine differently 
at higher altitude. For example, semi-sweet wine uh, tastes more appealing than, for example, a Bordeaux. And why is that? Uh, the humidity in the air or up in the air at the uh, cruising altitude is quite reduced and also dries out plates. And if a plate is dry, uh, semi-sweet wines and even sweetness is uh, more favorable than, for example, the strong tannins in a Bordeaux. They dries out the palate itself already. And then you have a combined experience with the low humidity and uh, you will not taste it the same way as on ground. Olivier Jean's menu Taste of Switzerland is served for the next three months. However, once the passenger steps off the plane, he wants him to do so with a new culinary memory. I have something which I'm very proud. It's our industry, the job of chef, the, the job of FME industry is we have many, many chance. The first one, we are lucky because our job um, have this incredibly and indescribably uh, fact that we can make people happy. That's the first thing. When you go to the grocery store, you go pack, you could buy some milk, some vegetables, some dairy, whatever you need for your house. But when you go to the restaurant, you have different signification. Of course, you have to eat, you have to meet friends. But I won't think, and I'm, I'm sure about it, that when you go to our places to celebrate something small or big, no matter what, but you create this very small circle of um, intensity with the, mm -hmm. with, with the customer. And then the other thing is I'm very proud to be and to say that we are the service of the people. It's something I'm very proud of it. And then I think such as a professional, you have to have this in mind. So in the end, of course, if you can make them feeling this in the food, it's better. Definitely. Marian Zumbo there. You're listening to The Menu on Monocle Radio. Next on The Menu, we are visiting the newly opened Sonora Taqueria. After running as a highly successful food stall at London's Nettle Market, Sonora has now expanded to its first bricks-and-mortar location on trendy Stoke Newington High Street. Run by couple Michelle Salazar de la Rocha and Sam Napier, the taqueria serves food exclusively from Sonora in northern Mexico, Michelle's home state, which has made it the first restaurant to focus on this region's cuisine in London. Nora Hall sat down with the owners to find out more. Food in Mexico is super varied, and Sonoran food and northern food is what I grew up with, which, you know, what I'm much more, I guess, comfortable with. And yeah, basically the concept of the of the restaurant is to do exclusively northern Mexican food, which is also quite special here in London because you there's no other place that is doing it. So like hyper-regional and to sort of try and differentiate it for the rest of the Mexican food, it's flour tortilla based, it's very beef focused, lots of grilled stuff on charcoal, quite a lot more simple recipes compared to stuff from the south of Mexico. And yeah, I mean, undeniably also a little bit influenced by the US, just by proximity. This is sort of a side question, I might be completely unrelevant, but is it closer to like Tex-Mex than other Mexican food? Or how is it, what's the American influence? I think it's kind of like the other way around. Tex-Mex is influenced by northern Mexican food. So the reason why flour tortillas are super popular in that sort of region of Mexico is because of it coming from the north of Mexico. But I think at this point, it's sort of influence goes both ways at, at this point. That's interesting, because I've always thought of the flour tortilla as like a likely Americanization of a corn tortilla. 
But Sam, tell me a little bit about what do you think are going to be some highlights of the menu? Um, what, has, what have people enjoyed so far? Because you've had, I think it's probably a completely new menu, but sort of some iterations from your previous food stall menus and old yeah. favorites popping up. Yeah, I think like 50% of it's new. The thing which is exciting for doing this is that we, uh, a, we, we're having a bigger menu lets us have slightly weirder things on the menu. Like we've got cabeza, which means head in Spanish. In Mexico, it's just straight up an entire cow's head that they steam and pick apart the brains, eyeballs, everything. Here, it's just cheek and tongue because you can't get eyeballs. Um, but you get to have that kind of thing, you know, which would obviously not be like the center of a menu when you have three items, but it gets to exist on there. And the other thing, I mean, really, on the menu and off the menu in terms of the food, having this place like has allowed us to be a lot more similar to a taqueria in Sonora, both by having certain items on the menu, but also by having things like lots and lots of customization available, you know, lots of variations on the same theme. So like the three top items on our menu, when you look at it, are all carne asada, it's all grilled beef, but the next one comes with beans and cheese and the next one's on a tostada. You know, it's like these little differences. And then you get your food and you get to choose your own salsas from a salsa bar rather than it coming as like a completed dish and things, you know. And these are all like really important to the context of a, of a taqueria, I think, you know. That's what we were most excited about with this place. That's what we've really, really, really focused on doing rather than being able, you know, because we also talked about doing more like uh, sit-down meals and things like that. But um, what was really exciting for us is to try and just be as similar as possible. Like our menu is so similar to a lot of taquerias that we've eaten in in, in Emerseo and Sonora and uh, just really appreciated the like minute changes between two items on the menu and, and things like that, which... I don't know, you just feel more capable of doing in like a bricks and mortar location, you know? Because I think when it's a market stall, it's such a sort of, A, we only had three things on our menu, but B, it's sort of like a showcase, you know? You're like showing yourself off or whatever, but here it's like, it's an actual taqueria. This is just, you come in here, that's what you get kind of thing. It's, I don't know, solidified or something. It lets you, lets you be, do things which I think would be deemed less popular in general, I mm-hmm. guess. Weirder, more regional, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And beverages. Now we do beverages. That's cool too. <laughs> so what would you say for someone who comes here for the first time, what should be like a first time order? Boy, um, well, the carne asada is like the most Sonoran thing. And it's our most straight down the line Sonoran thing, I guess. It, it's just grilled beef in a taco. That's it. And we have the charcoal grill here. You know, that's our most special thing in terms of the kitchen, in terms of our service functioning kind of thing. So for sure the carne asada, but the best thing to do is just to order a couple of things and then come back again, you know? That's what we really wanted to focus on as well here is in the market, you waited a really long time sometimes to get to the front of the line. You obviously wouldn't rejoin the line. The way you order in Mexico is you go and get a couple. You go, oh, I like this one. I'm going to get two more of that. Oh, I feel a bit hungry. I'm going to get this to top it off. That's the way we really want people to order here, you know, is just to try a couple of things and just experiment through the through the menu if if you like it and you can sort of narrow down to like I like this salsa with that one and I like this one with cheese and this one without and and that kind of thing you know so really I mean that's kind of a non-answer it's just everything (laughs) but but the carne asada is is the main thing I think everybody needs to try tell me about you mentioned a cactus and I just thought about local um, 
you know, you stuck to sort of traditional recipes and met- methods. How has it been finding the correct produce here in the UK? Have you have you substituted anything for local ingredients, or how, how's that process been? Yeah, so we're quite lucky to not need a lot of specialized ingredients because of again how simple northern and sonoran food is that we can substitute a chile verde that we that we use which is basically anaheim chili we substitute it with turkish peppers and then that we don't need corn to make our tortillas which would be quite a nightmare to import to be honest we can do everything with local flour which is great and then for the other stuff that is 100 essential like the dried chilies and things like that, there are importers. Like Mexican food is so popular here that we're very lucky to have people that are already doing that job for us. There's a place that imports, a couple of places actually, that import dried chilies, that import the nopales, that import all sorts of things that we use. So in some sense, we've been lucky to, to be able to find the essentials, basically. And the rest we sort of substitute, for example... We cannot import cheese from Mexico, and to make it would be an absolute nightmare. I don't have the capacity to do that. But instead, for example, in our nopales taco, we have a bit of a crumbly cheese topping that essentially is replacing a cotija or a queso fresco, and we use British cheese. We use crumbly Lancashire that it crumbles in a very similar way and is just as salty. So those sort of things that you tweak to make it sort of feel as reminiscent of, of the typical stuff. And I think it's worked well. One of the harder things to get, though, is, is cuts of meat, certain cuts of meat, which, like, more offal-based things, which are literally near enough illegal here, like cow intestine or cow brain and things like that. But also just the, the, the cuts that you grill in Mexico are, are completely different. The ways you butcher a, a cow across the world change a lot, and it's really, really, really difficult to explain to British butchers who have, you know, decades of experience using this cut for slow cooking and this one for grilling. But actually, we want the slow cooking one for grilling, but you got to cut off this part of it. And explaining those minute parts is something that still we're, we're, we're trying to get proper sourcing for, um, or like consistent sourcing for, for Mexican cuts of meat, basically. There's no Mexican butchers mm-hmm. in London. I was wondering, Michelle, as well, about um, have you gotten any response from sort of the Mexican diaspora in London, specifically northern Mexicans? Are people excited about finally finding this type of food here? Yeah, for sure. I've been here for for quite a few years, and for the longest time I didn't really interact with many Mexicans here, just because nobody at uni was Mexican, none of my friends were Sam's friends. You know, it was kind of difficult to find people from, from my country. But as soon as we opened the market... I started getting to know lots of people from all over Mexico and, and, and also other Latin American countries. And then slowly, more and more, Mexicans were coming, whether it's people that live here or are here on a work visa or students. There was a group of students from Sonora that were, I think, studying somewhere else, not in London, and then came all the way to London to just have Sonoran tacos. And then since then, obviously, through the Kickstarter and building this this restaurant we get loads of messages from mexicans saying i can't wait i'm so excited i cannot believe i can find this sort of food here so yeah the 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 excitement is definitely there and i'm super grateful that people are like excited to come and try it and because 
I don't know. I guess it's very surreal still to, to have people interested in what you do when you're sort of focused on working, 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 and then you realize, oh, I'm actually bringing something positive to somebody's day and, you know, a good lunch. Nora Hall speaking to the founders of Sonora Taqueria. You can find their restaurant on Stoke Newington High Street in London. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Thanks for listening and until next week. I would still be on my